Um, can I invite all of us uh, to join me in prayer as we come and listen to the Lord's word? Because you are our solid rock and our sure salvation, because you are our steadfast hope, which will not be shaken, our souls will wait for you, O Lord. So speak to us, O Lord, that you may refresh our souls in your word. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to begin my sermon this morning by asking us to indulge me in a moment, for a moment, and uh, imagine along with me this conversation that my son could be having with me in his earlier years, okay? So the imaginary conversation goes something like this. Hi, Dad. I know this is quite a silly question, but how do I know that I am your child and you are my father? Well, son, it's not really a silly question. It's good that you want to be sure who your parents are and who you are a child of. So for one thing, son, you could uh, go and take out your birth certificate. Okay? In fact, let me show it to you. Can you see that? You will realize that my name, together with your mother's names, are recorded down as your parents. Of course, going beyond the birth certificate, you could actually compare your photo with mine when I was about your age. Okay, let me see if I can find it. Yep, I found it. Here it is. Okay, okay let me try and pull it out of the file, okay? There it is. Yeah, I'll leave you to decide which one is uh, my son and which one is me, okay? But look at it, huh? and you will realize how much you look like me. You are a chip off the old block, like they say, huh? Okay, I know for you as you look at this photo, you're thinking, oh, so cute, you know? What happened to you, Pastor Edmund? What happened? You know, yeah. It's okay. I think my wife still finds me cute, so I find absolute confidence in that, yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Can turn that off. Now, if that still doesn't convince you, then you could look at some of your character traits your behavior and your mannerism, and you realize that in many ways you are similar to me in how you behave, right? And finally, if that still doesn't convince you, let's go for a DNA test. That should prove, provide all the final evidence that we need to convince you that you are my son. Well, Dad, that's fine. I take you at your word that you are my father and I am your son, okay? Okay, end of imaginary exercise, <laughs> this uh, conversation. Thank you for indulging me and going along with my imaginary conversation. Uh, can you see what a tall sermon preparation takes on preachers? You've got to, you know, try to find ways to connect in an introduction and, and so forth. Yeah? How to tell whom we are children of? Well, this imaginary conversation with my son has to do with confirming our physical or our biological parentage. But what about when it comes to our spiritual parentage? How do we tell who our spiritual father is? How do we know whether God is our spiritual father and we his children? Now you might be wondering in the first place on a Sunday morning, early morning, why would anyone want to know the answer to that question, Pastor Edmund, why? I mean, isn't it obvious? We come to church to worship God, so we must be His children. 
Can you see it's not that big an issue for us now, but it was a very big issue for the Apostle John's church back then when the letter of 1 John was written. If you remember from the past few sermons, John's church back then was facing a problem. There was this group, and from the look of it, it was quite a sizable group. It was a big group, sizable group, consisting of both ordinary members and possibly some of their leaders as well. So this group had been attracted to false teaching, and in holding on to the false teaching, they had disowned the church fellowship they were from. And that is the fellowship where the Apostle John pastored over. Yeah? And they had departed from that fellowship. And not only so, they came back and now they were challenging the remaining members by promoting their newfound false beliefs and teachings. Okay? So allow me to show you this slide, the situation in 1 John that captures for us what was happening. The context, so like what I mentioned, there was a problem of those who had left the fellowship. Okay? And the technical word for that is... Uh, secessionists, okay? So, um, yeah, I'm not too sure whether I pronounced it correctly, but that's the technical word, this group that has left uh, the, the fellowship. And they were attracted to um, false beliefs and teachings, and this is just a summary of some of the false beliefs and claims that they were making, okay? So, firstly, they came and they said that they truly know God, okay? They are the ones that truly know God. And then the second claim that they were saying is that they had reached this stage of sinlessness, they were perfect. They were no longer sinning. Yeah? Um, they also deny Jesus' divinity. They deny the fact that Jesus is from God and that Jesus is God. Yeah? They also deny Jesus' work. They said that Jesus didn't really come to save us. Yeah? Um, they, they do not love their fellow brothers and sisters. Uh, and lastly, they claim that they are doing right and practicing righteousness when actually they are sinning. Yep. So I'll leave that on for a little while more so that you might just want to take a quick snapshot with me. Okay. So imagine again with me this uh, hypothetical situation. This is the second exercise this morning to get us to stay awake. <laughs> now imagine if one of the pastors in ARPC together with some church elders and deacons, let's imagine that they leave ARPC because they are attracted to some new fat teaching out there. Okay. And as they leave, they draw away some of the members along with them. Then on top of that, one day, one Sunday morning, they suddenly come back to church. And they come back to challenge us, those of us that have remained behind. They say to us, actually, you don't really know God. You, know? you are not really abiding in God. And as a result, we, rather than you, are the true children of God. Now, can you imagine with me the amount of chaos and confusion such a situation would cause? Because if that really happened, it wouldn't be a name then, right? It wouldn't just be a name. It would be a familiar face accompanying that name that is making that claim. Pastors, leaders, discipleship group leaders, people that you once trusted and listened to suddenly turning around, coming up to you and saying, you know, you might not really know God. You might not be abiding in God. In fact, you might not really be his child. What I hope and pray will never happen to us as a church was exactly what was happening to the aged apostle John's church. That's why in this section of his letter, the section that we're preaching on today, 1 John 2, 28 to 3, 10, 
The apostle is keen to establish very clearly the markers which prove us to be the children of God. He's keen in that sense to show the spiritual DNA markers that enables you and I to know with certainty that we are the children of God. Yeah? So there are two spiritual DNA markers that I want to share with us this morning. The first one, children of God are born of God and long for God's reappearance. So the first thing that the Apostle John reminds the church is the process by which they came to be children of God in the very first place. Yep. So if we look at the passage, 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then in 1 John 3.9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So this phrase or this expression, born of God, is actually found some 10 times in the letter of 1 John itself. Okay, so I've listed the passages there for us. And the interesting thing is that John uses the phrase born of God quite often in his letter, but he really doesn't explain what it means in, in the letter. He assumes that his readers already know and understand what it means. And rather, the explanation is found not in John's letters, but is found in John's gospel, which he had written just slightly earlier in the Gospel of John. So let me pull you two passages from the Gospel of John that shows us what it means to be born of God. First one, John 1, 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the second passage is the passage that we read in our uh, responsive reading. Nicodemus going up to Jesus, Jesus telling Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus saying, how can that be? And Jesus says, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Yeah? So this being born again has got something to do with being born of the Spirit. In other words, when we pull together these two passages, to be born of God means to experience the new birth that God himself brings about. This new birth does not happen through any process of natural human procreation, meaning it's not, it doesn't happen because uh, uh, a man and a woman decided to come together and, 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 uh, and procreate, okay? It's not, it's not, that's not how we come to be born of God. But instead, to be born of God is only something that can be brought about by God. God brings about this new birth in us through His Spirit in conjunction with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who have experienced this new birth, it is because God has worked in them this way. So what does this mean for us this morning as we come and as we are reminded of what it means to be born of God, that we have become His children? I think it means this. From a human perspective, as much as we say that we become children of God by believing in Jesus and having faith in Him. That's true. That's true, right? So some weeks back, we had a new member service. As the new members came forth, they declared their faith in the Lord Jesus. So from a human perspective, that's true. That's how we become children of God, having faith in the Lord Jesus. But from a divine perspective, it is because God chose precisely to work in us through His Spirit 
to bring about this new birth. And it is through having this new birth, being born again of God, that you and I come to be his children. So at all times, both the human and the divine perspective must be equally emphasized, and never one at the expense of the other. Yeah? And it's really this divine perspective of God giving us the new birth out of his great love for us that the apostle mentions right at the beginning of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Yeah? The expression in the second part there, so we are, it could be translated more literally as, and so that is what we are. So it's a double emphasis. And the Apostle John wants to remind us that indeed it is out of God's great love for us that God gave us this new birth. And so for us, children of God, gathered here listening to his word this morning, let us take a moment, take a moment to thank God, to praise him, that indeed he is the one who out of his great love for us has given you and me this new birth through his spirit in Christ our Lord. Let's take a moment to thank God and to praise him for doing that work in our lives, so much so that we are so privileged to be called children of God. And having reminded us how we come to be called the children of God, John goes on to remind his beloved church. And he himself was very fond of using this term, dear children. So whenever you read in John's letter, dear children, he's actually referring to the whole church. He was fond of calling them that, dear children. Yeah? And John goes on to remind them of the spiritual marker of our identity as the children of God. And that is, God's children long for his appearance. Or should I put it more strictly, his reappearance. So let's have a look at the verse. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who does hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, John states clearly in these verses that having been given a new birth by God, we are his children now, this very moment. And one trait, one marker of being God's children now is that we will long to see him. Okay? I think maybe parents of young children get a sense of this, uh, this desire to, to see uh, yeah, uh, the parents. Yeah? So I'm sure you recall the, 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 those days eh, when, you, uh, uh, when you come home tired from work. And guess what? The children, young children are normally delighted and excited to see you, right? Right? They will be listening intently for the door, and then when they hear the door unlocking, um, and as you come in, what's the first thing that you get? You get cries of, Daddy, Mommy! And then next thing you know, they are running out from their rooms, and they run to you. And the next thing you know is they, they, they jump and they leap into your arms for that golden hug. Nothing beats that feeling, right? That golden heart, right? That, that greeting from them. So can I say this? Parents of young children, enjoy these moments while you may. I know it's very difficult parenting young children, especially through the COVID pandemic. It's tough and everything. But can I just say to you, enjoy these moments while you may. 
For the time will come when you open the door, say, I'm home, only to be greeted not by golden hugs, but by golden silence. <laughs> and if you are very lucky, you might occasionally get a golden grunt. <laughs> Coming out from their rooms, huh? Yeah. And when you reach that season in your life, you realize that's the time that you get a golden retriever. <laughs> because the dog will always come running up to you and hugging you. Yeah. Okay, my, my, my family is here and my children are here. I have to say that they actually do greet me when I come back home, yeah. So it's normally hi, dad, you know, so that's very good, yeah. So keep it up that way, okay? <laughs> what can we see? As God's children, that is what we should have. That great eagerness to see him. That great desire to hear his voice, to hear what he has to say to us. Well done, good and faithful child. Welcome home. Now, that's every reason in itself as, as to the desire to want to see God. That's every reason in itself because He is our spiritual Father. But John here gives another reason, another reason for why we should long for God's appearance. And He says this What we will be now as God's children has not yet appeared to us, and it will only appear to us when God. Or should I say, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to us. Because then, we will be like Him. And we will be like Him because then, we will see God as He is in the fully glorified and perfected God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's a profound mystery here, what John is saying to us. He's saying some very profound things to us about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice how easily he moves in and out between referring to God and referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost seamless, right? Moves in and out. He says that we are God's children now, and what we fully will be as God's children will appear when he appears. Verse 2. Now, who is the he there? The he could refer to God, after all, John had just described us as God's children, so the subject reference is naturally to God. Yeah? But at the same time, it could equally well refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know that when the Lord Jesus returns and appears before us, from Philippians 3.21, we know that our lowly bodies will, by God's very same power, be transformed so that they will be like Jesus' glorious body. And then we will see God as He is, fully revealed in the risen and ascended and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And so we realize that what John is doing here is that he's drawing a very tight identity thesis without explicitly saying that this is what he's doing. Yeah? And he's saying this to us. God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. There's a very tight identity thesis between the two. And in doing that, John could be rebutting one of the claims of the false teachers. Remember, one of their false claims was that they did not believe that Jesus is from God and that Jesus is God. And here, this could be the Apostle John's way of refusing their claim. Yeah? So in applying this truth for us today, yeah, allow me to ask all of us, children of God, are you and I collapsing under the ravages of our sicknesses and diseases 
as these sicknesses and diseases eat away what used to be our healthy, fit bodies. Children of God, are we breaking down under the erosion of our mental health as day in, day out, we battle depression, anxiety, fear, compulsive thoughts, and all sorts of other mental health situations that we have not wanted, but they came out of nowhere unexpected, uninvited, robbing you and I of the normal life that we so wish to have. Children of God, are we languishing under the weight and burden of our daily struggle against sin? Whether it's our desires, thoughts, habits, or even addictions. I don't want to have these desires. I don't want to have these thoughts. I don't want to have these addictions. So much so that it feels like an endless battle which we never will be able to emerge victorious from. If that is us, if that is us hear God's word that has come through the Apostle John. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So children of God, let us lift up our eyes. Let us long to see the Lord Jesus risen and lifted up in his glorified human body, free from all sicknesses and diseases. Let us long to see the Lord Jesus risen and lifted up in his glorified human nature, which consists of the mind and the emotions, free from all mental health conditions that may plague us now. Let us long to see the Lord Jesus risen and lifted up in his glorified humanity, the sinless one, the one perfect in righteousness. And know this, know this, children of God, that is what we shall be. That is our final destiny for which God created us, redeemed us, and will make perfect in us. So that's the first spiritual DNA marker of us as God's children. Children of God are born of God and long for his appearance. And the second spiritual DNA that John lists down for us, children of God abide in God and practice righteousness rather than sinning. And so he says this in 3.6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. Now, at first glance, this spiritual DNA marker or criterion is a little bit difficult to understand, and it seems to put intention or even go against what John said earlier in chapter 1, right? Where, remember, in chapter 1, he said this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have no sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So earlier in chapter 1, John encountering one of the claims of the false teachers. And remember there, the false teachers were saying that they no longer sin, that they had reached perfection. And the Apostle John says, any such claims to sinless perfections, they are bogus, they are false. Right? So having said that, 
Why is it now in chapter 3, John says that a spiritual DNA marker of the fact that we are God's children is that we no longer keep on sinning? Isn't he contradicting himself? Right? And the key, I think, in understanding what John means when he says keep on sinning in chapter 3, or another term that refers to it, the practice of sinning in chapter 3, a key to understanding what it means is to look at it uh, and, and the first clue comes to us from verse 4. So let me quote verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And the Greek word for lawlessness is actually this word, anomia. Okay? Now, this word translated as lawlessness is found only in this verse in all three letters of John. 1, 2, and 3 John. You only find this word lawlessness appearing here. Yeah? And contrary to our first intuition, lawlessness doesn't carry the idea of breaking the law. A lot of us think that lawlessness is straight away we associate it with the Old Testament law or any law that we might think of. Okay? But it doesn't carry any ideas of that. Why? Because the word law and the idea of keeping the law is actually absent throughout 1 John. Yeah, this idea. So this has led at least one Bible commentator to suggest that lawlessness as used here in 1 John 3 has more to do with this. It's more to do with describing the spiritual reality of the sinner, the situation of the sinner, the interior state, and not so much the evil act or acts that they commit. Okay? So I won't go through all the intermediate steps with us, uh, yeah, um, but instead I just want to show us the conclusion of this commentator, a conclusion that sounds rather convincing to me. Okay? So all this is taken from uh, Colin Cruz, um, the, the, his commentary in the letters of John. And he says this, All this suggests that when the author of 1 John says, sin is lawlessness, he does not mean sin is the violation of the Mosaic law, but rather that sin constitutes opposition to and rebellion against God like the opposition and rebellion of Satan. If this is the case, then the author is really saying that those who claim to have seen God and know him, yet persist in sin, certainly do not know God and are, in fact, in league with Satan. Okay? In, other in other words, what I think is getting at here is that the type of sinning that's mentioned earlier in chapter 1 and the practice of sinning mentioned here in chapter 3, they are different. Yeah? One is sinning from a heart of deep-seated disbelief, an attitude of rebellion. And who carried this attitude? Chiefly found in the devil himself, chiefly found in Satan, this, this deep-seated rebellion and attitude of disbelief against God. Yeah? And here... Um, that's what the Apostle John means in chapter 3 when he says the practice of sinning. Yeah? It's, it's, it's sinning from this deep-seated rebellion against God and disbelief uh, of God. Yeah? And this practice of sinning here, uh, there John tells us, is the direct opposite and it takes the place of this other phrase that he uses, the practice of righteousness. Verse 7, verse 10. In this context, the practice of righteousness really means walking in the light as God himself is like, being obedient to his word and showing love to fellow believers. That's what the Apostle John means by the practice of righteousness. Yeah? And these were the very things that the false teachers were not doing. 
because they were carrying on the practice of sinning, right? As they disown Christ and at the true fellowship in Christ. Yeah? So that's the type of sinning that's meant in chapter 3, the practice of sinning or keep on sinning. Okay? Whereas the type of sinning that's mentioned in chapter 1 is different. It's different. There it is a sinning which happens, may I even say, inevitably will happen as we struggle against sin in our lives now. And the fact that it is a struggle goes to show that the attitude of the one sinning in chapter 1 is very different from the attitude of the one sinning in chapter 3. The one sinning in chapter 1 is not doing so from an attitude of disbelief and rebellion, but rather from an attitude of belief, a desire to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because the one in chapter 1 has a desire to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ that he or she will face this struggle against sin. Can you see? If, if, if you and I have no desire to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not face any struggle at all against sin. But it's because we desire to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ that you and I find ourselves in this immense struggle against sin. So the one sinning in chapter 1 is doing so from this struggle and sometimes the struggle can get so bad that you can cry out in desperation, a cry that is best exemplified in Romans 7.24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this is a cry that finds comfort and assurance in the immediate verse, Romans 7.25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is a kind of sinning in chapter 1. And as John tells us there, this is a kind of sinning that needs to be confessed before God. And when done so, receives the assurance of his forgiveness and his cleansing. This is a sinning that though tiresome the struggle is, and often we find it very defeating, will one day cease. And tying back to my first point, it will cease on the day Jesus, the sinless one, reappears. For then we shall be like him, without sin and without struggle against sin no more. Yeah? And really that is the hope that drives our daily confession of our sins. Yeah? And so one of the um, spiritual practices uh, that, 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 that we try to teach our students uh, is this uh, what we call examen, where we spend a, a moment in the day where we just examine ourselves before the Lord. How has our day been? Lord, show to me, speak to me areas where I might not have thought rightly, I might not have spoken rightly. And as we do that, we just confess our sins before the Lord. And we receive His forgiveness. And all this time, there is the great hope that is driving us in doing all this is looking to that great day where we will see Jesus as he truly is, the sinless one. And on that day, we too will be like him. So two different kinds of sinning are on view here. That's why I don't think the Apostle John is contradicting himself in chapter 3. Instead, he is right on track. Children of God who have been born of God cannot and will not keep sinning in a way that comes from a deep-seated disbelief and rebellion against God. Because God's seed abides in them. 
most likely a reference to the Holy Spirit, yeah? And they will stop sinning from a standpoint of disbelief and rebellion. And even if they do sin, it will be from a standpoint of belief in the midst of their struggle against sin instead. And as children of God, they will be practicing righteousness, walking in the light as God himself is light, being obedient to his word and showing love to fellow believers. And by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So in the passage today, the Apostle John shows us how we know that we are the children of God. And it was important for those who had remained behind in his church to know this, because this was the very thing that they were being questioned by those who had departed from their fellowship. Do you really know God? Are you really abiding in Him? Are you really the children of God? So in ending, I just want to get all of us to do this last imaginary exercise with me, okay? Imagine that we have the Apostle John with us here today. Let's call him Pastor John. Okay? And uh, in memory of an event that we had last year, now we all have a chance to ask Pastor John. Yeah? The conversation might go something like this. Pastor John, Pastor John, these are very confusing times. There are so many people, people whom I once read the Bible with, people who were in the same DG with me, those who were once my youth leaders, my DG leaders, my deacons, my elders, why even my pastors? They are now coming up to me to say that I do not truly know God and might not even be his child. I'm really very confused. How do I know whether I'm God's child and we are his children? Well, Pastor John might answer, first and foremost, you have to remember that being the children of God is not something that we work towards. It's not a status or achievement that we earn solely by our own efforts. It's not. But being the children of God is something God-given. God gives us the new birth through His Spirit in His Son. And it is this new birth, being born of God, that grants to you and me the status of being children of God. And then, as we have been granted this status, we will no longer rebel in our hearts against God. We will no longer commit sins that flow from this rebellion. Instead, we will believe in the Lord Jesus. We will submit to him. We will practice righteousness even as he is fully righteous. We will desire to abide in God through Christ, to walk in his light, to obey his word, to love our fellow brothers and sisters. And as we keep doing this day by day, it will be accompanied by an increasing desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way, see God who is fully revealed in Him, to see Him in all His perfect glory and beauty. So even as you and I struggle in the meantime, as we struggle with our sins, our weaknesses, that desire to see the Lord Jesus grows. And it serves as assurance that indeed, we are the children of God. And to know that on the day of our Lord's appearing, we shall be like Him. That's how you know whether you are the children of God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. I want to give us a moment of silence just to reflect upon 
what we have heard and how the Lord may be speaking to you, and just to respond to him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so, that is what we are. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the reminder from your word that has come through your apostle, the apostle John. Thank you for reminding us how we come to be children of God, that it is nothing less than a gift from you, a gift that you have worked in us through your spirit as you direct us to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that even as we respond to you as children of God, um, that even as we, that we, that we will no longer sin from a, a heart of an attitude of disbelief and rebellion, but instead that there will be a, a belief in the Lord Jesus, a desire to submit to you. And even as we struggle against sin from that standpoint, we are rest assured, assured in your forgiveness as we come before you daily confessing our sins and our failings before you. And all this time, we thank you for putting in us that desire to see you, O oh Lord, on that great day where you will appear in the fullness of your glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, O oh Lord, that on that day, we shall be like him. So we pray that that hope may sustain us, may sustain us in our daily struggles. And all the more as we struggle, that their hope will become greater, will increase, and all this time we will be yearning to see you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.